Hello and welcome to episode two of Back to Britpop. It's Chris here and on this episode I'm speaking to Mickey Berenyi of the band Lush. Lush formed in 1987 and their music was kind of described as shoegazing really. It was, it was quite different to some of the music that was coming out of the UK at the time. Mickey gives us a great insight in, into the early years of them being pushed by their label in America and all the tours and shows that they were asked to do over there subsequently what happened when they came back to the UK and the changes in the music industry so it was great to hear from her perspective uh, a kind of different take on what was happening to the music industry in the 90s and of course Britpop. Join me after the interview for a bit more waffle about uh, social media and all that sort of thing. Enjoy the interview. Hello Mickey and welcome to the podcast. Hi thank you for having me. How's things been for you in this sort of post lockdown era that we're in at the moment? Is it well? I, to be honest with you, I'm not really post yet. I think we're <laughs> we're a bit of a house of panic, so yeah. we, we're sort of being still being very, very, very cautious. I mean, the kids are sort of going out a bit, but Moose is just determined not to leave the house if he doesn't have to. Looking back at uh, Lush and those early days of the band, I mean, it must seem like a such a contrast in terms of how easy potentially things were in terms of just turning up to a venue, plugging in and playing. It's, it's 100 miles away from where, you, where it is now, isn't it, in terms of that rawness, do you think? I mean, funnily enough, my daughter plays in bands and stuff, and they're these sort of South London punk bands and little music scenes that aren't really a million miles away, you know what I mean? You'll get a mm. venue where half the people in the audience are in their own bands, and you all show up and you kind of hang out together. And that actually isn't so different, really. Um, I don't know how you break beyond that. That's the only thing, because I suppose we had those labels, you know, we had 4AD and we had Rough Trade and, and there were kind of, you know, One Little Indie and all these sort of labels yeah. that were small, but they had a, a big kind of global punch, actually. Mm. And plus, you know, much, much as my relationship with the music press was always very love-hate, it did mean that, you know, you had loads of people in America who were massive anglophiles who would buy the enemy at the Melody Maker because they were there was no kind of weekly outlet for that there was no internet and so it got you well known you know there was a sort of structure sort of beyond that little pub scene mm. that got you known like globally actually weirdly I mean not you know world famous but I'm just saying you know you could, yeah. you could have some sort of presence and there was in America there was all that college radio and yeah I think that it was just a big, big web of smaller support structures that made it, you know, the smallest bands could, I mean, I can remember touring with a band called The Bugs in Germany. I mean, yes, we were sleeping on people's floor or whatever, but, you know, we were completely unknown. But you could do like a 10-day tour of Germany and Austria. Yeah, it just yeah. didn't seem that impossible, you know what I mean? And also on that ground level, you did, it was, I suppose, it more tactile, would you say? Because you're, you're, you're doing a lot of work face-to-face -face or, you know, flyers and having a, like a, a, a team or some devoted fans that were doing stuff for you to promote you as opposed to, you know, hoping on a few likes and clicks and tweets and things, which is so unpersonable, it feels to me. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe the thing about the, the clicks and the tweets is that it takes so little effort that there's mm. so little investment. Whereas I do think when you were sort of, I mean, you know, yeah, you'd print up your own flyers, but so would the people running the venue. And a lot of the stuff you'd only know about if you actually went to quite a lot of gigs. So you'd have to go to the gigs to find out about the other gigs. So there was quite a, a kind of commitment to people 
often you'd get a venue that was quite popular and people would just show up even if they didn't know who the band was because it was all about a whole scene and kind of being involved with that and then getting to know the people on it and then going to see the bands and blah 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 you know what I mean so it was more than just you know oh I'm just gonna put so little effort in I'm just gonna click that I might buy it probably won't I'll just stream it I'll just stream the two songs that they're talking about do you know what I mean yeah (laughs) yeah 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 It's, um, it's, it's sad. Uh, yeah, it, it feels like it has kind of lost something. I mean, I get that there is a sort of democratisation in that, yes, you could play at your local pub and this, that and the other, but after a while, if, if like, say, The Enemy or The Melody Maker weren't going to feature you at all or, you know, you weren't going to get any kind of a label interested, you know, it was mm. it was difficult and very few people had the wherewithal to you know set up a label themselves there was no crowdfunding at the time I mean the idea of actually pressing and distributing your own material I mean I think the Enid managed it (laughs) from my memory and crass but beyond that um, it was just too much of an undertaking whereas now obviously you can just record something in your bedroom stick it on the internet you know have an online presence and hey maybe it will take off I mean I don't know because it clearly hasn't worked for me but (laughs) presumably that's a possibility so let's take things back to the beginning in a way, because how you got into music in the very first place, because Lush have a quite distinctive sound. What kind of music was playing when you were growing up? I mean, to be honest with you, my parents were pretty staid. I think, you know, my mum listened to like Carly Simon and there's kind of, you know, whatever was on the radio. My yeah. dad was... I don't know, you know, Adam Faith and fucking Elvis Presley, probably. (laughs) That's about the extent of it. And I think the way I kind of got into into music was just top of the pops, school, you know, the kind of usual outside channels, really. And it sort of maybe sparked sort of significantly when I met kind of Emma and there was a, a couple of other girls. There was a little group of us at school when we were about 13, And we then got very, very obsessive about music and a very teen girl, Duran Duran, Spandau Ballet, Haircut 100. So you're listening to Kid Jensen, who was on at (laughs) six-ish, and then you sort of go and see a few of these, you know, big, big bands, chart bands, Soft Cell, etc. And then you realise that they have support acts, so you go and see their support acts, and then you see their support acts. And, you know, within about sort of four months, you're kind of, you know, at the Fulham Greyhound or downstairs at the Clarendon and realising that John Peel is the thing to listen to. And John Peel played pretty much, I mean, everything, you know, so it was was hard to not then, you know, it was really great to have that kind of uh, a platform because it was just an introduction to everything without needing to have like an older brother or sister who was into cool music. So then it was a real gateway. What do you think spurred you to write your own songs? Uh, I think I just kind of fell into it, you know, and I, because me and like I say, these girls, we, I mean, we ended up literally going to gigs about five times a week. It was ridiculous. So it was everything. Gigs were very cheap back then. You know, you could go and see a band for about a pound or two. And we didn't really drink, you know, we'd sort of nurse half a cider for the whole evening. So it was um, quite cheap entertainment, but it felt really exciting. And I think, you know, we got to the stage where certain gigs we were going to, I mean, everybody in the crowd seemed to know each other and most of them were in bands. And it would just became really easy to join bands. Emma joined a band called the Rover Girls. I joined the Bugs. I mean, I literally joined the Bugs when their bass player said he was going to San Francisco. 
and I just said like oh I'll play bass for you you know never played bass in my life so it was very easy to form a band be fourth on the bill at the Falcon or something and just get up and do it and really it was the atmosphere of that that kind of might as well have a go because everybody else is doing it rather than you know I we weren't kind of I wasn't sort of nursing this talent in some lonely bed sit and then bursting onto the scene at at a certain age I was just desperate to be part of it to be honest Mm. so like I said we were in our separate bands but Emma really particularly wanted to write songs and felt probably too self-conscious to take them to her band so we just started working on them together because you two didn't really write together as such you didn't sort of sit down and pen tunes you kind of came to came to the to the band with your own different songs already kind of fully formed almost is that right yes and I do you know what I I sort of often think about the genesis of that and I do think you know one of the reasons was we just weren't very good musicians so those first kind of tentative steps when me and Emma would get together and we think all right well let's do a cover of a Delta 5 song or something and we'd sit there and kind of work it out and then we try and sort of jam you know we think well what about if I do a bass line like this and then and it was just awful like we weren't getting anywhere it was a total waste of time so we realized that the way to do this is to go away write the part and and then send it to the other person so they can learn it because it's just we're not good enough to just go hey okay so if you play blah 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 in the key of it was meaningless so I think that's where the habit sort of started and then it sort of calcified where it was just easier to write stuff separate uh, so that you could actually come into a rehearsal and feel that you knew what you were doing. Was there a definite sort of difference in terms of sound, in terms of what you know, what you were writing and what Emma was writing, or was it kind of were you going for the similar sort of vibe, for want of a better term? I think when we started, it was it was quite silly and jokey. I think I had an idea that I w- we were going to be like the gym slips or something, and Emma, you know, like a sort of punky girl band and I think Emma's you know had a more sort of sophisticated um frankly better songs (laughs) you know um and which actually did make me go okay fucking hell this is actually that's a really lovely song and 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 so I think while we did write separately and we did quite have a separate sound I do think we influenced each other quite a lot because certainly Emma's stuff would influence me I think okay that's okay I can see what she's doing like weird chord progressions Mm. interesting harmonies and yeah I think we influenced each other in that way definitely how was the rest of the band form then did you sort of put out flyers or did you just know like a drummer and a bassist uh... I literally started at North London Poly and met met Chris, met Steve, met Muriel, and probably within two weeks of meeting them said, look, do you want to be in a band? (laughs) Um, I think Emma was a little bit wary at first because she was like, oh my God, you're you're getting in all your friends from college. And I said, I'm not being funny, Emma, but I've literally just met them. (laughs) I probably know them for three weeks longer than you have. So. And so what were those early sessions like then when you kind of had everyone on board? Was it did you feel something, you know, was worth really pursuing properly? I think we were just having a really fun time you know we knew we were starting from absolute scratch but it was very easy to get gigs actually I think we it was just one of those sink or swim things so that we just play realize it was absolutely awful so we better rehearse for another week um but I think any kind of you know the first year of a band is very hit and miss isn't it because mm-hmm. you're all trying 
different things. I mean, I think, you know, Meryl was our first singer and I think she realised sort of early on that she didn't really feel that comfortable being the front person in, in that way. She wanted to play guitar. So, you know, she went and then, and then I had to sing. I didn't want to, but we tried advertising, but everyone who turned up was a bit weird, actually. <laughs> some of them were lovely, but some of them were really odd. And so I think it was just by default. You know, Chris was a really good drummer. Chris was the person who had been in loads of bands and he, he was the best musician. Steve had never played bass before. You know, he played acoustic guitar. You know, no one was, was that an amazing musician. And in a way it helped because it meant that... that the music that we did could I don't know there was something sort of quite charming about it just you know no one really imposing a particular style on it it's almost like the songs came before the band identity really came it all sort of blossomed at the same time which I think made for possibly a more interesting sound I think I mean it's very ramshackle for a while but I do, do think it genuinely blossomed in a very organic kind of way as sort of Britpop and that scene is kind of exploding, you're already well established and quite, well, seasons isn't the word, but you've done some time in terms of on the road and you've had some releases. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of the life expectancy of many bands, we'd already been going for quite a long time, really. And yeah, we had, we had like toured America and I mean, probably Split which was our second, I mean, it was a bit weird because we did like a, we did like a mini album and then we did a load of EPs and in America, then they all got grouped together yeah. and released as Gala. So to some people, that's the first album and Spooky is the second album. Spooky is really the proper first album, but it feels like it could have been the second album. And then Split, which came out probably, I mean, what are the Britpop years really? When does it start? Oh, I suppose it kind of starts 95, 96, doesn't it? Or maybe even maybe 94. You're starting to see some of the, the term. Right. The term starts getting used. I mean, you, you kind of, bands, a lot of the Britpop bands that everyone would sort of pigeonhole would be on their third, second, third, fourth albums by that time anyway. But they had, I suppose that's, that term and that scene had just started to turn up everywhere you kind of looked and, and was sort of um, labelled. So yeah, Split would be definitely, well, that was the album that was kind of on the, on the money in terms of the time, timeline. Except yeah. it's just clearly not a Britpop album. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I think you could argue possibly that Hypocrite as a single was, you know, in that flavour. Yeah. But I don't think there's a, a, another track on that album that is you know mm. so in some ways and it didn't do as well as spooky and in some ways it it kind of was you know not the best time to release that album because I think you're right I think the Britpop wave was sort of rising and, and breaking and we put out what was a very kind of quite dark and introspective album it was partly why I always felt the Britpop tag was kind of a bit misplaced because, you know, I just thought, well, we clearly weren't a Britpop band. But I suppose by the time you get to Love Life, you know, that's where people will say, ah, oh, yeah, but that's when you jumped on the Britpop bandwagon. So, <laughs> <laughs> Looking back at this, this era, because as Saucy said to you pre-record that we, we, I wanted to explore Britpop as a concept and what it was like for bands on, you know, inside looking out. What did you think of it all? Did it all seem a bit ridiculous to you? So I, the, the weird thing for me about Britpop is that it kind of caught me slightly by surprise because I think we put out Split in 94 and then we just toured that for the whole time and suddenly I just remember getting 
back from all this time being away and plus I just wanted to say that when we recorded Split we weren't in London we were off in Rockfield then we mixed it in France at Mike Hedges' studio so we were out of the country yeah. for a large part of the time when all of this was taking off so I kind of remember just coming playing a Fela Festival or something which I suppose was the summer of would it have been 94 it would have been 94 so it was still it's either 94 or 95 but anyway the point is is I just remember coming back to this festival and thinking oh my god this stuff is really everything's kind of changed what's going on yeah. like the the atmosphere changed without us really being there the whole time and so the next thing was again when we recorded Love Life, we were off in the studio. So I was going to gigs and I was seeing these bands and I did kind of enjoy the rise of it. I mean, I have to say I loved Pulp. I didn't think of them as a Britpop band though. You know, I went to see them. I mean, obviously they'd been going for years before Britpop. It wasn't till the kind of, you know, I suppose Elastica and, and Echo Belly and, you know, so the bands that felt like they were new to, they were the spark, if you see what I mean, yeah, rather, yeah, than, yeah. rather than Blur, who'd obviously had a whole career before it as well. And, you know, mm. so it was that kind of wave where I suddenly thought, okay, so things have really changed. And I think, you know, I enjoyed it in as much as, you know, I don't know, going out dancing and mm. jumping about to, oasis or supergrass or whatever it was terrific fun you know but i think um that kind of the fun aspect of it which was much needed because i did think you know i think there was this sort of solemnity to a lot of bands and that kind of you know american grunge scene i know it's like well said that Britpop was a response to that and i get it that it was a bit navel gazy and what have you and, and Britpop had this sort of energy and a kind of like let's just jump up and down and enjoy ourselves and stop being so serious but I think the the sort of crap end of it didn't really hit me until we'd made Love Life and then we had to do all the press for it. Uh, lots of in your face kind of programming was happening at the time and all this kind of lad culture thing that I, it was kind of like quite in your face some of the interview styles of that, of that era and specifically like um, some of the MTV shows and it's so shoddily put together and it's it must have been quite just boring um being asked some of the ridiculous questions i just noticed like watching your interviews that it just seemed <laughs> so awful and <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised you stuck them out was it that bad or around that sort of time you know to be honest with you interviews are always a bit you know some interviews are great but a lot of them are quite boring you know and that's just because you know, it's fair enough. I get it. I mean, we did loads of interviews in America when it was all the shoegazy stuff. And you get these very earnest student types asking about Robin Guthrie and 4AD and blah, blah, blah. And I mean, anything you get asked a million times becomes boring. But, you know, I understand. Hey, I'm not, I'm, they're doing their job. I'm not going to yeah. knock it. I think the difference with, with Britpop was that you were expected to perform. And whereas even prior to Britpop, you know, there was a bit of a reputation that Lush had for, oh, you know, they're party animals and Nicky swears and, ooh, you know, a girl <laughs> that swears, my God, stop the press or get drunk on cider or whatever the fuck it is, right? So whereas that was seen as just a sort of, you know, relatively quirky thing, but, but totally acceptable because there's a punk scene where obviously 
loads of girls do that it's not that unusual suddenly in the Britpop era era it became something to like really focus and capitalize on and then it it felt like look this isn't actually who I really am you know mm. it's interesting as an adjunct because you know people expect a 4AD band to be I don't know to sit sort of listening to choral music and being vegans or something I don't know whatever and so it's amusing when you realize that the Cocteau twins are a you know bunch of sweary Scots boozers and the same same with Lush you know Mm, as mm. being you know football and beer or whatever but suddenly when you've got the landscape of Britpop where everybody is expected to play that part up Mm. you know then it becomes really grating because you Mm. think well this isn't something that I actually think is such an amazing thing you know, I don't really want to sit around talking about football at every interview. And that, I think, is really boring. You know, the mm. fun part is doing it. Who wants to sit around talking about how much they fucking drink all the time? Yeah, yeah. Like, and how much they swear and how laddish they are. And I don't know. I, and I just sort of realised that it, it was suddenly getting really, like, sexualised as well. Mm-hmm. Like, this makes you, like, some sort of dream shag because you're a girl that's willing to act like one of the lads, but still, you know, be all pouty and sexy. Mm. And that really pissed me off, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so when did you decide to, I mean, there's obviously other, other, other things that happened to the band, but th- was this a real kind of era for you where you, th- sorry, those, those points you've touched on, were they really kind of extreme enough for you to want to maybe just to turn away from it all? I think that, to be honest, I mean, I think definitely that that really grated. I mean, you know, the thing to remember is we did always have a quite a good American base. So, you know, you could sort of get away from all of that a bit by yeah. touring in America. Unfortunately, with that last album, I think we were being pushed to playing America again and again and again and again. And, you know, one of the positive things of Britpop was... Never mind all the kind of laddish posturing, but it did actually make Europe a lot more open, you know. A, mm. And, you know, we, we did play Paris and it was packed and, you know, suddenly there was all these European gigs and festivals and we could have done them. But, you know, we kept getting back, dragged back to America because to management and, you know, whatever. I mean, that's the golden ticket, isn't it? If you make it there, then you're kind of you're yeah. done, really. But. It's exhausting. It's an exhausting country to tour. As lovely as it is to play there, it's huge and it really takes it out of you. And I think, sorry, just to get back to your answer, was that for Emma in particular, who wasn't someone who massively enjoyed touring, I think both of those things, the kind of Britpop playing up to this sort of, you know, more pop-centred image and the kind of that kind of press and coupled with the endless efforts to break into America. That was definitely for her. I'm not doing this anymore, which I totally get. And, you know, she, she did reach the end of her tether and we had a meeting just, you know, before it all really fell apart. And, Mm -hmm. and I did say, it's fine. I agree with you. Let's, let's just, I, you know, I would happily record an album of fucking 17th century choral chants (laughs) or anything, you know, or some Mm. acid jazz, you know noodling if that's what you want to do I actually don't care but I just think it's really important to keep the band together but then yes well then we had the whole Chris disaster so that was that but I I do think yeah I think there was I genuinely think that the next Lush album would have been very much more of a 
you know, if not a completely different album, then certainly a much more of a return to the more soundscapey that kind of side of the band. When you look back at it, has it tainted your kind of experience as being in a band slightly? I think it it was a difficult experience because as someone, like I said, who got into playing music because of a kind of community, because of a... I mean, I don't want to make it sound like too much like a hippie haven, but you know what I mean? It really was about friendships and a scene where you could, you know, it was a kind of can-do thing and people would encourage each other. I found Britpop quite bitchy and backstabby and there was an element of a lot of people sort of taking what started as a kind of refreshing British sort of, you know, fingers up kind of honesty. Mm. But actually, it twisted into something a lot more. It just seemed to become licensed to be really obnoxious, actually, mm. and quite nasty. And in particular, the music press, which, you know, I've got clippings from that time that I read back and I think I can't actually believe someone wrote this. You know, mm. it's just a load of nasty insults i mean it's it's what you get on twitter now <laughs> funny enough yeah 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 those journalists were actually not writing about music they were just trolling so you know that part of it yeah that kind of i thought this is not you know, i'd rather not be in this sort of be interviewed for this kind of magazine than actually do this again because it's just it's just humiliating actually but you came back uh, later and and reformed uh, and put some new music out and did some talking <clears throat> again. And what did that feel like? It was sort of kind of weird. It was like starting, well, it was start, starting all over again. But it was interesting that, you know, when we started writing the stuff together, I mean, we didn't tell anyone. We were trying to keep it so quiet just because we kind of didn't want it trampled all, all over. And maybe you're right, you know, maybe I, because I've been so out of touch. I didn't, I kind of didn't really realise how, how the the press thing wasn't the same anymore Mm. so even you know with the lush reunion i was sort of expecting the knives to come out instantly Mm. and it didn't really happen that way because i do think you know that at least has has changed you you would know better than me because you were probably reading music press all the time but something changed for sure well the when when they kind of weren't published published anymore kind of was the big when it moved online (laughs) i felt when it moved (laughs) yeah i mean one of the saddest things and i don't know my experience of melody maker was was different to uh, the enemy and for many years i bought both religiously but there was always something very uh well nicer than about melody maker they just seemed to be a bit more wholesome and then you had this brattish enemy that felt like they could pick people up and drop them just just because they felt like it on that day and that kind of when melody maker disappeared for me that's when it's kind of it felt like there was only one real kind of voice and dictating what you should be and shouldn't be doing and that i kind of sort of lost interest in in it completely and, and went went somewhere completely different with my music choices but I certainly think they really looking back at it I think they really had a really big hand to play in terms of some of that as you say the backstabbing and the the animosity between bands I think that was my experience of it I mean I did you know there were people I got on with and I liked but it wasn't quite you know the same kind of friendships as you as we would have had with you know bands like My Bloody Valentine or or you know Slow Dive or you know, even ride or whatever. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, I think yeah. there was this sort of more gentle 
you know side it wasn't and I, I just think it was that adoption of that sort of yeah up yours we we win you lose you know it was all that <laughs> mm. kind of stuff which actually you know people think oh it's just a joke but you think actually it kind of pisses you off mm. and the press absolutely fed it i mean obviously with oasis and blur or whatever but they did it with everyone i mean i can remember the enemy had a regular column where it was you know lush versus sleeper i mean i mm. think i only ever met sleeper like once or twice and i met them at a festival and i had a drink and i thought they were all right i didn't fucking know them but you know they set up this rivalry mm. and i thought what you know mm. like the bands were even similar but I think that because they really fed that and it was that, you, you know, you had to have the flavour of the day. You know, I always felt as a woman that it was a bit like this sort of revolving stage where we'll let one woman, right, sort of lord it for a little bit and then we'll mm. swap her out and get the next one in, which I don't think the blokes had quite as bad. But, you know, oh, no, no. It, was, it, was, it, was, it was deliberately pitching people against each other. Really tiresome, actually. Yeah. I mean, you know, and very tabloid, I suppose. That was the point. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's, as you're right, it's all moved online now. But you, the thing is, with that, you can turn it off. Uh, and you can, you know, you can select in, in many ways who you, want, who, who you want to hear you and who you want to listen to as well. And um, without sort of one all-powerful publication dictating what you should and shouldn't be doing. Um, certainly that's how it felt like well certainly how I feel looking back at the era uh, and you know all that music was fantastic and I loved all the bands and uh, and got really into the scene uh, I was the right age it was the right time for me um, the fashion and the ambiguity of it, all, all kind of all the members of the band were all interesting and they all had something different to bring to it but as a 42 year old man looking back at it thinking hmm, did I really need to buy they buy into the, the, some of the cultures and did I really need to obsess over some of the enemy gossip stuff? And, you know, in hindsight, it, to me, it's tainted the experience, but ultimately the music's fantastic. And I think that's what we would like to celebrate as well about it, other than only all the shite as well that goes with it. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think, I think when you kind of tease those bands apart, you know, I think if you, if you can love a band like Pulp and not necessarily like, oasis they're so bloody different anyway you know and this is what i think even people who are in a scene and are the kings of it who do object to being compared to bands that they find they have very little in common with i mean i certainly felt that i, I just thought i don't know how anyone can put lush in the same group as as oasis or or you know I don't know, the Boo Radleys or whatever. And that's not to denigrate any of those bands. Mm. It's just saying, like, how are they the same? I don't understand, you know. But then probably I was quite a bit older. So maybe that's part of it as well, that I felt it didn't really grab me in the same way as it would have done if I was like 19 or something, you know. Yeah. I was already quite old for that by then. And actually, funny enough, that struck me the other day that quite a lot of those bands were older, you know, what hit me about comparing the sort of, a lot of the shoegaze bands, they were quite young. You mm. know, Ride were very young, Slow Dive were very young. You know, we were only about, you know, 22 or something. But I do think a lot of those Britpop bands were quite a lot older. So they had already had, you know, they were quite slick already, which had, had quite a different emphasis to it, I think. You know, a lot of these people, it's quite funny, isn't it? You know, think of thinking of people who are like nearly 30 acting like they're sort of 22 year old lads 
out on the town. And actually, even that was a bit of a sham. Because yeah, they yeah. weren't. They, they'd been around the block. They toured with other bands. They liked loads of different kinds of bands. They weren't just these sort of young kids who had been let loose. So even that made me feel like it was a bit of a cynical kind of put together invention. I suppose it just felt a bit inauthentic to me as well. You know, let's fast forward a little bit in terms of you getting back into new music and writing new music and having a, your new band. And how did that all sort of start and manifest itself? Well, I think because I'd been, you know, in between Lush splitting up and Lush doing a reunion, there was 20 years where I just didn't, you know, I had a normal job, I had kids, I just didn't, I wasn't interested in being in a band at all. And I was very reluctant actually to do the Lush reunion. But in retrospect, I'm really glad I did it because it was, you know, there was a lot of problems involved, but it did get me back into music, which I massively appreciate. And I think when it all kind of ended, it did feel like it would be a really nice thing to just keep making music. Mm. And actually, you know, 50 odd, there's something a bit liberating about not having those same illusions. Like, you know, you're not for a second thinking about, you know, world domination or whatever. You were just thinking, it's just a nice thing to write music and to be able to put it out and to record it and to work with people and the camaraderie of it and you know the creativeness of it and you are and I sound like a bit of a punce but all I'm saying is is you're literally doing it because you're enjoying it and then yeah. if you stop enjoying it there's no pressure no one else's career is in, is reliant on you you're not tied into some astronomical contract or I've got a normal job every day I don't have to do it and that actually takes a lot of the pressure off I mean it does mean that I can't make it as intense I can't do it full time but I can pick and choose the bits that I do want to do which is yeah. I'm sure I'd feel I, I mean I would feel completely different if I was 20 years old but I'm not <laughs> so it's a very different experience yeah yeah there's, there's something very liberating about writing music and producing music um, for purely personal reasons isn't there and um i get completely what you say because something i enjoy doing now as well and without ever really thinking about um whether someone's going to turn up or listen and actually want to speak to you at the end of the gig which is kind of what happened to me for five years and then never going anywhere which is always a killer isn't it when you're when you're an aspiring band well yeah because that's your dream and you yeah. kind of you know and you've seen people before you kind of get there so it feels like it's just within reach you know i think i just feel you know very grateful that I can still do that because it you know for all the time that I was not in a band people were like oh you should do some solo stuff and blah 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 and I was like I am not a I'm just absolutely not motivated enough to be a solo person I'm just way too lazy I need someone breathing down my neck to sort of you know motivate me to do anything like that so actually having a band and uh, just just an environment where people actually want to work with you is really quite lovely, actually. But without having to deal with that whole treadmill of, of expectations, you know, which was what, not 4AD, but, you know, certainly being signed to Warner Brothers and not criticising them. Of course, that's what a record company is there to do, is to sell, sell, sell. But, you know, the pressure on you to kind of conform and go along and jump through every hoop that's put in front of you and if you mm. don't you're seen as difficult or you know hard work or oh you know and it's exhausting so one of the good things about this sort of lockdown period as well and sort of the oh, good things about the pandemic sounds ridiculous but <laughs> every, everyone being reintroduced to sort of this nostalgic nostalgia evenings with 
Tim's Twitter listening parties, and you were you you were kind of uh, well, Love Life was one of the featured albums, wasn't it? Fairly recently, um, which must have been pretty good. And I think that's what has also been quite uplifting about this this sort of dark period, is that everyone reconnecting with this kind of music. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a you know there's a lovely aspect to all of that, and I think Tim, you know, you've got these sort of internet kind of people who are incredibly driven and very good at organizing this stuff and hats off to him you know and god knows i think he spent every minute of his lockdown having to sort of juggle that and his own album and his own family yeah yeah it's a a brilliant thing to have organized um i you know it's so weird about the internet though because there's a bit of me clearly i wouldn't be making a record now and i and i mean you know i'm so I'm blown away actually that people even give a shit about Lush anymore <laughs> but you know there's that is a I have to say that isn't a large part thanks to the internet I think because it's the catalogue for old bands is just kept alive because it's accessible something that you would have had to have hunted in some second-hand record shop to buy quite possibly mm. is just widely available the problem I see with it is I think it makes it really really difficult for new bands because if you've got the last 60 years of music to listen to, do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's quite hard to invest in like something that might be like really fledgling and still be growing. And you'll just sit there and go, well, I'll wait till, you know, I'll just wait till the second album and then download it for free. I don't know. Yeah. It just feels like, like as much as I think it's great, it has an effect and I feel, I feel that's quite tough. I mean, God knows how people are going to make money out of music. That's for sure. Oh God. Yeah. This is very difficult time. And, and, and also the industry is going through some difficulties and we don't know what's going to happen, but let's hope it works itself out and uh, everyone, everything gets back to some sort of normal, whatever that might be. Well, um, I think some, something, I always live in hope. I mean, I don't think you can just destroy music. I just don't think that would happen, but you know, it could be that it is, back to square one it's back to a totally grassroots raised to the ground start all over again mm. and i don't really have a problem with that personally you know does that um, mean i might get a record deal you might still get a record deal <laughs> I'll you get may... hair. i need the hair transplant if I'm going to... <laughs> yes you might have to put a hat on but yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I live in hope. That'll please my wife. Um, well, listen, it's been fantastic speaking to you, Mickey, and I'm, I'm really pleased you came on to talk about the uh, what is still, you know, subjectively a great era uh, for music and a very nostalgic time I've had going through your old catalogue of songs and going through my tapes in the shed, which is kind of what spurred all this on in the first place. Um, so, you know, thanks again for for joining me on the podcast today. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure. Thanks again to Mickey for speaking to me on lockdown again. It was a really great chat, actually. It was really good to talk to her and get her sort of perspective on what was going on at the time. If you really enjoyed the podcast so far, I really hope you do. But if if you are feeling inclined to write a review and give us a five-star rating, that would be absolutely amazing. Also, you can search for Back to Britpop on all the social media. Give us a follow or a like or whatever and uh, get involved in some of the chat about a great era for music. I'll see you on the next episode.